passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. For the rest of us, we'll be in uh, 1 Samuel 15 this morning. Um, good news and bad news. Uh, this chapter is long. So there's, I guess you can say whether that's good news or bad news. Um, uh, the good news is um, the main point of this chapter is really the, the, the sermon title. Um, this is a pretty straightforward um, account and, and what happens here in 1 Samuel 15. And um, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. As, as we saw last week, um, as we were in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we saw that um, the reign of Saul lasts for about 30 or so years, and yet, as you consider the, um, the story of Saul um, and of his reign in the book of 1 Samuel, really what we see is that only chapter 13, 14, and 15 uh, deal with Saul's reign. And so chapter 13 and 14, those two chapters, they, they look at Saul's battle against the Philistines at Michmash, and then this morning's passage, chapter 15, looks at his battle against the Amalekites. And, and here's the surround, uh, probably the surprising thing for us, as you consider these two passages, both of them are resounding victories for the people of Israel. They're, they're massive victories for Saul. They're, they're huge testaments to his success, and yet you read chapter 13, you read chapter 14, you read chapter 15, and that's not at all the picture that you get of Saul. You don't get this picture of this person who's this great military leader, great king. Instead, the, the text focuses on how Saul refuses to listen to the voice of God. Over and over, Saul shows himself to be disobedient. Now, here's the thing about Saul. He has other people fooled. If you look at him, he tries to act spiritual. He might have other people fooled, and yet he doesn't have God fooled. And here at the end of Saul's reign, in chapter 15, we see that God has, has something to say about Saul. He has this picture that he wants to show us of what Saul and his kingdom is actually like. Here's this man who's persistently, consistently, regularly rejected the word of God, rejects God as king, and so God rejects him as king of Israel. Now, there's a few parts of our passage this morning that are a little challenging for us to navigate, um, but, but I don't want us to miss the, the forest or the, the big picture um, for all of these, these details. I don't want us to get bogged down in some of these, these challenges I just want us to recognize that the, the overarching message of this passage, as I said, is summed up in our sermon title, to obey is better than sacrifice. That's the message of this text, to obey is better than sacrifice. External acts of worship mean nothing to God if we're also not walking in obedience to Him. We have to remember that to obey is better than sacrifice. And so we're going to go ahead and jump into this morning's passage. Uh, we've broken it into kind of three parts, three words. Um, first, victory. Second, disobedience. And then finally, the end. But before we jump into this passage, let's go ahead and pray. Would you pray with me? God, uh, as we consider this passage this morning, we do ask that you would help us uh, to examine our hearts, see the ways that all too often we can act like Saul, that all too often we can be consumed with the external acts, actions of worship, 
and yet be completely empty of, of any sort of obedience to you. So we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would open our eyes to see those areas of our lives. And God, that you would help us to follow you and keep your commandments, not as a way of, of earning our place before you, but instead just as, a, as an act of true worship to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so our chapter begins with a story or the picture of, of Saul's victory over the people of Amalek. Um, some time has passed since the end of chapter 14. Uh, several years have passed, and the text opens with these instructions from Samuel the prophet to Saul. Take a look at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore... Listen to the words of the Lord. And I want us to pause right here, just at verse 1, before we even get into the actual words, the actual instructions, because Samuel's preface here to what he is about to say is really important for us in reminding us what a king is supposed to be like in Israel. What is God's plan for a king? So Samuel is making it very clear to Saul that even though he is the king, he isn't the final say in the land. He doesn't have autonomous authority over all things, even though he is the king. The only reason he is the king is because God uh, anointed him through Samuel. And so, in God's economy, to be the king of God's people, you have to also listen to God. You are not the final say in God's kingdom. You don't get to do whatever you think is best. So Israel's king is supposed to be subject to the true king, God himself. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now these words are probably shocking to us. God's instructions for Saul are for him to go to the southern area of their land, of their kingdom, go to their southern neighbors, to the people of Amalek, and slaughter every single man, woman, and child, and all of their livestock. And it sounds awful to our ears. And it is awful, but probably not in the way that we first think. Let's consider just three important things that we have to, to have in our mind as we consider instructions like this in the Old Testament. The first one is this. We should ask the question, why? Why is God telling Saul through Samuel to do this? Now, some people, like Richard Dawkins, a noted atheist, he wrote this book, The God Delusion, he would say that the reason why is because the God of the Old Testament is a, quote, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. Is that the picture that we have here? The reason why God is commanding Saul to do this is because he hates the ethnicity of the Amalekites. Well, let's consider the passage. We, we look at verse 2, we look at verse 3, and we show that, you know, this isn't, this isn't at all uh, about ethnicity. It's not a, a matter of ethnic cleansing. God doesn't have it out for the Amalekites because they were born into the wrong family. The answer is found in verse 2. Let's read verse 2 again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did, in Israel, or did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. 
So there's the foundation. And what we have to do is say, okay, well, this is referring to something that's taken place earlier. And we go back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. The people of Israel are leaving the land, or they're leaving slavery in Egypt and they're wandering through the desert. And then all of a sudden, the people of, of the Amalekites, they attack the Israelites. What we see here, as we look in Exodus chapter 17, is that this isn't a matter of ethnic cleansing, but instead it's a form of judgment. That the people of, of Amalek, they stood against God, they stood against his purposes, his plans against his people, hundreds of years before this moment. And God, in that moment, promised that judgment would come upon the people of Amalek for their actions. What's more, this judgment foreshadows the judgment that is to come. This isn't just an Old Testament thing. As though the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and God in the New Testament is, is loving, God is both gracious and just in the Old Testament and gracious and just in the New Testament. He doesn't pay out more than what someone's sins deserve, but he's also not going to just let sin go. And you go talk with people who have been wronged. Many of you know I was in, in Liberia several months ago and talking with some of the people that were living there, living through the Civil War, the, this time that just destroyed families and basically the entire nation. And there is this longing for justice. And you talk to people who have been wronged. And when I say wronged, I mean really wronged. And you'll see how the promise of God's justice is not a stumbling block, but it's a great comfort. It's a great hope. If the new creation is supposed to be perfect, then that means wickedness has to be dealt with. So judgment, while it might be hard for us to, to hear, is actually really good news that God is just. Notice something else. We can't just mention God's judgment from this passage. We also have to mention his patience, his long-suffering nature. Israel, back in Exodus chapter 17, is victorious over the Amalekites, but, and notice God's promise to Moses in Exodus 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And for some 400 years, God waits. God does not bring judgment upon the people of Amalek. He doesn't destroy them right away. In God's timing, he waits centuries for the time of Saul to come, for Saul to be the one to fulfill the words that he spoke to Moses centuries earlier. And we ask why. Romans chapter 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God waits to destroy the people of Amalek, to, to bring judgment upon them for their sin, giving them the opportunity to repent, giving them the opportunity to turn to him. He gives them this opportunity to, to run to him, and how do the people of Amalek respond instead? Judges chapter 3. Eglon gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Judges chapter 6, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. 
The people of Amalek over those centuries continued to raid, continued to conquer, continued to oppress the people of Israel. You look at the end of 1 Samuel, the Amalek survived. Amalekites survive, and we see that they are in the business of raiding the people of Israel, kidnapping women and children, making them into slaves, burning cities to the ground. God gave them centuries to repent, and yet instead they continued to persist in their wicked ways. So when we consider the words that are spoken here through Samuel to Saul, Yes, they are about judgment, but they also reveal God's long-suffering, patient, gracious character. And we can talk more about that, but I mentioned that's not the main point of this passage, so let's go ahead and jump into or continue going on. The important thing to recognize is that God gave Saul very clear instructions. How does Saul respond to those instructions? Verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur which is east of Egypt. So here we see that Saul has gathered this large army in southern Israel to attack the Amalekites. Before he attacks, he, he tells the Kenites, this is other group of people, other um, people living south of, of Israel, says, hey, I, you should escape now so that way we don't kill you along with the Amalekites. And that's good stuff, right? That's, that's important from Saul. He doesn't want the innocent to become collateral damage along with those that God has devoted to instruction or destruction. And so he attacks the Amalekites and he's a complete success. The Amalekites are destroyed from Havilah, which is very far east, probably along the Dead Sea, uh, all the way to Shur, which is uh, to the west near Egypt itself. So far, so good, right? Well, then we get into verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless he devoted, they devoted to destruction. I want us to just look at the contrast between what God commands Saul to do in verse 2 and 3 and then what Saul actually does in verse 9. Let's go ahead and throw these two verses up. God says, do not spare them. Verse 9, what does Saul do? They spared them. The point is very clear. One of Saul's greatest military successes is overshadowed by his disobedience. He, defi- he defeats the, the raiding Amalekites from the Dead Sea all the way to Egypt, and he doesn't obey the voice of God. Now, he, he, he partially obeys the voice of God. Notice in verse 8, it says that he destroyed all the people of the land with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, it says they destroy a, a, a large amount of the livestock, but rather than completely destroying the things that God has said to destroy. Rather than completely obeying God, he first decides to spare Agag, and then second, 
to spare the best of the livestock. And if you've been with us as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, you'll see that Saul is back to his old ways. He, he refuses to listen to God fully. He says, you know what, God, you're only worth listening to if that's what I wanted to do in the first place. He doesn't say that out loud, but that's what his actions reveal. And I don't think we would ever say that out loud either, but all too often we are like Saul. We might obey God, but we don't obey God all the way. When we listen to God, we, we listen to him as far as we can, and then we kind of just ignore the hard stuff. We ignore the parts that are really going to cost us. Isn't that why Saul spares Agag and the best of the livestock? He, he spares Agag because this man is not a sense of misguided mercy. This man is a war trophy. He kills everyone else, and then he keeps the king as a, as a sign of his greatness, to show everyone, the surrounding nations, you don't mess with Saul. You don't mess with the king of Israel. And then he spares the best of the animals, and it's not because of anything besides just greed. He sees the value of these animals. He doesn't have a problem with slaughtering the, the ones that are deformed and, and malformed and, and sickly and, and, and weak. But these good ones, he just can't... can't fathom the thought of destroying these things, and so he just basically pockets the difference. God doesn't reign in Saul's heart. Greed does. Pride does. Saul sits on the throne of Saul's life. He's willing to listen to God, but only so far. Only when it's not costly. Only when God doesn't ask a whole lot of him. How does God respond? Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. God is grieved over Saul's actions as king. That's what this word regret means here in, in this context. It's, it's not as though God is saying, you know what, I made a mistake. I really shouldn't have done that. If I would have known better, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made him king. That's not what God is saying at all. He knows from the very beginning. You follow the context of 1 Samuel. The people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, they ask for a king, a king like the nations. And God says, you know what? Fine, I'll give you exactly what you want. I'll give you a king like the nations. He knows exactly what Saul will do. And yet, at the same time, it grieves his heart. It makes God sad for how Saul responds to him. How he refuses to follow God. He refuses to keep his commandments. Notice his heart breaks for two reasons. First, Saul has turned his back on following him. And two, he has not kept his commandments. And just a side note on that, if you want to know how to uh, honor God, you want to know how to please God, do the opposite of Saul right there in verse 10. Saul it grieves the heart of God because he won't follow God, he won't keep his commandments. And it follows, well, if you want to honor God, if you want to bring a smile to his face as we use that language with our kids, follow him and keep his commandments, even when it's hard. 
This first section comes to a close, and we notice that God is, is grieving the actions of Saul, but also notice that Samuel is angry here. The text doesn't tell us why he is angry. It, it just says he's, he's angry. I think Samuel here is just overcome with emotion in this moment. He's just angry, and he's, he's angry at a lot of things. He's, he's probably angry with Saul. He's, he's probably even angry with God. Like, why did you do this to your people, giving us a failure as king? He's probably angry with himself for going along with this plan of God's. And yet, what does he do? In the midst of his anger, he doesn't lash out. He calls out to God all night. What a beautiful picture. And after crying out to God all night, we see the second part of this, this passage. He confronts Saul, and he, and he confronts him in his disobedience, starting in verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So he's, he spends all night crying out to God, and then Samuel heads south to meet Saul, and on his way, he hears that Saul has set up a monument to his own victory in the southern city of Carmel. And if we had any question before this moment, what are Saul's motives? Now we see it. He, he only cares about himself. He's doing this for his own glory. This was a common thing for pagan kings. When they would be victorious, they'd set up a monument to themselves, to their own victory, declaring how great they are. And that's exactly what we see from Saul. He goes back to Gilgal. After he arrives in Gilgal, this is where, if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 13, God rejects Saul as king. There's a number of, of echoes in our passage here in chapter 15 with what we see in chapter 13. Pick up in verse 13. And Samuel called or came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And I think in my Bible, I just have written down, what? And I think that's the, the same response from Samuel here, because notice the sarcasm of his response. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Here's one of the most fascinating things about Saul, and I think it reveals a whole lot about us as well. When Saul is confronted with his disobedience, he doesn't even realize he is being disobedient. He thinks that God is honored with his partial disobedience, his partial obedience. He thinks, well, you know what, I, I did most of what God said, and that, that should be good enough for God, right? He thinks that he's honoring God when he's really just doing what he wants. He's not doing what God wants. And Samuel responds with sarcasm, shows God doesn't have the same impression of Saul's actions whatsoever. Verse 15, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So after Saul is confronted with his sin, he goes on the defensive, and, and notice the word they here. He doesn't say we, he says they. Well, the army, they're, they're the ones who did this. He's distancing himself from the wrongdoing, and I think we also do that as well, don't we? That we distance ourselves from the wrongdoing, and then he makes himself an excuse for himself, and he says, hey, you know what? The reason why we spared these sheep is because we wanted to make a great sacrifice. And I want to give Saul the benefit of the doubt here because I think there's probably a kernel of truth to this statement. 
We've seen from Saul to this point regularly going through external acts that look spiritual, but the heart is lacking. And he goes to Gilgal, and the only reason he would go to Gilgal, which is this holy site, would be to offer a sacrifice to God. And yet in doing so, I think Saul reveals that he has a very pagan idea of God. In your notes, if you're writing notes down, write down Psalm 50. Psalm 50 describes this picture of what God is actually like compared to what the nations think of their gods, and it's radically different. The surrounding nations thought that sacrifices were essential for their gods. It was a way of actually feeding their gods, that their gods needed to eat, and so sacrifices were a way to feed them. And Saul, he's never been too serious about the things of faith, and so he assumes, well, God probably needs the same, right? It has, it's been a while since he's had a good meal, so let's go ahead and give him his great big gift of, of all of these sheep that we have, all of these animals. Is that what he wants? Is that what he needs? Psalm 50 gives us the answer. Verse 16 of Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I love that word, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel here is, is confronting Saul once. It doesn't sink in, so he does it again here in this passage. Notice this word pounce. We saw this word last week in chapter 14 to describe the people of Israel when they had been fasting all day and, and running 20 miles, and they see food and they just jump on it. So they, that's what Samuel says, you know what, that's what you did when you saw all of these beautiful animals. Instead of doing what God has actually said, you pounced on them. We see the heart of Saul. Maybe there was some truth to you wanting to sacrifice here from these animals, but at the, at the root is your desire for these things for yourself. That yeah, you'll follow God, but not when it costs you a fortune, when it costs you a lot. Saul and the people, they can't be bothered with following God, with being obedient to him, being obedient to his commands. Verse 20, and, Samuel, or, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Saul, once again, he defends himself, and he, again, he tries to separate himself from the people. He says, well, you know what? Okay, well, all of the, all of the sacrifice thing with the, the livestock, that was just the people. I did what God asked me. I, I devoted everyone to destruction, and then I kept Agag. Well, you just condemned yourself right there, Saul. He admits, as he's trying to defend himself, that he has kept, the, he, he says, I've kept the, the commands of God, and yet he admits that he, he hasn't. How does Samuel respond? He confronts him a third time in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 
Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. There's, there's four parts here to Samuel's little um, response to, to Saul. I want us to look briefly at each part. The first one is this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the Lord? So he asks this question of, of Saul. Has, has the Lord as great of delight in these things? as actually obeying and, and, and listening to him? And the question goes unanswered because the answer is, is obvious. And unfortunately, I don't think the answer is all too obvious for us today. God's desire is not for us to go through the acts, external acts of, of religious devotion, divorced from a heart of faith and obedience. If we, if we really want to, to honor God, then going to church, reading our Bible, praying, uh, serving others, all of those things amount to nothing if it's not coupled with coming from a heart that gladly submits to God and to his commandments. Notice the second thing that Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Here Samuel gets to the heart of worship. He says, you want to know what God actually wants? These things. The, heart, or the, the fat of rams would have been the most valuable part of the animal. And, and Samuel's saying, you know what? If you're not listening to God, if you're not obeying him, then even the most impressive offering, the most impressive religious act, all of those things are, are absolutely worthless in God's sight. Third, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Samuel is saying that Saul is guilty of two sins here. He's guilty of rebellion, and he's guilty of presumption. He's guilty of rebelling against God by, by not keeping his commandments, not listening to God. Samuel says, you know what, that's like divination. Divination was the practice of, of trying to seek out God's will. What does God want me to do in this situation? But it was through the inappropriate means. So people would make sacrifices and then they'd look at the liver or they'd look at the blood of the animal and say, okay, what is this telling me about God? What, what does God want me to do? Or they would, they would go to mediums, they'd go to, to witches and say, all right, tell me, what does God want me to do? So that's the sin of divination. Do you catch the irony here? Saul has been given God's will at the very beginning of this passage. The prophet the ordained means of revealing the will of God, the word of God, has been given to Saul, and he says, you know what, that's not good enough for me. And he rebels against it and goes his own way. The second sin there, this one of presumption, he presumes to know what God wants more than what God actually says. Hey God, I know this is what you say, but, but I think I know you better than you know yourself. And it's laughable until we realize that we, we do the same. We ignore areas of our lives where we're not following God because we, we conclude, you know what, it's not as big of a deal to God in this area of my life as where I'm, I'm following him in this other area. And Samuel says, you know what, that's a form of idolatry. God doesn't sit on the throne you are seated on the throne of your life, Saul. You are the king of your own life, Saul. You are an idolater because you refuse to listen to God. 
Final thing, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you from being king. Notice the parallel here. By rejecting the word of, Lord, of the Lord, Saul has, in essence, rejected God as king, and so God says, I'll do the same. You reject me as king, I will reject you as king over my people as well. And that brings us to the end of this chapter, the, the third part, the end, the end of, of Saul's reign. Saul will be a regular a, a character in the rest of the book of 1 Samuel but only as a foil, only as a contrast to David. This is the end of his reign as God's chosen king. A couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we, when we were in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we referred to this, um, that chapter as the downfall of Saul. Last week in chapter 14, we saw that it's the tragedy of Saul. I think both words would be appropriate here as we pick up in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So on some level, Samuel has finally gotten through to Saul. Saul recognizes that he has in some way offended God. He confesses that rather than fearing God, he's, he's been fearing the people. Rather than obeying the voice of God, he's obeying the voice of the people. And in essence, he, he does the exact opposite of what God says he wants his king to do. Deuteronomy chapter 17, we've looked at this a lot. It's God's rules for being a king. And in Deuteronomy 17, it says this, And the word of, of God shall be with the king, and he shall read it in all the days of his life. That why? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law, these statutes, and doing them. So God says, you know what? I want you to keep the word of God before you as king so that you can fear me and you can keep my commandments. And yet we look at Saul here, and rather than fearing God, he's fearing the people. And rather than keeping the voice of God, he's instead obeying the voice of the people. And, and Saul, he's just completely failing as the king. And so he, 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 in some way, he recognizes he's doing something wrong, and, and he says, you know what, I, I've sinned, and yet he doesn't repent. He confesses that he, he thinks he needs the approval of others, he doesn't need the approval of God, and yet it doesn't lead to actual change. Notice what he says to Samuel here. He says, you know, I want you to come with me that I might bow before the Lord. I want you to come worship with me and with the people. Come to Gilgal with me because we're having this big sacrifice and I want you to worship with me. He's still planning on this massive sacrifice, this, this disobedient act before God, and Samuel wants no part of it. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie and have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. You catch the desperation here from Saul. It just oozes with desperation of this man who's losing everything and is trying so hard to keep hold of it. Verse 30. 
Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Again, Saul confesses his sin. Again, Saul doesn't repent. Again, Saul doesn't change. Again, he is more concerned with what people will think of him than what God will think of him than actual life change. So Samuel turned back after Saul. And Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So Samuel ends up following Saul back to Gilgal, but it's not because of what Saul wants from him. He doesn't actually go to worship with him in front of the people. Instead, he goes back to Gilgal to do what Saul had refused to do, that God in his justice had decreed that justice would be brought on the head of the wicked king of the Amalekites, and if Saul the king won't do it, then Samuel the prophet would. So he goes back to Gilgal. Verse 34, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And that's how the reign of Saul ends. It ends with a whimper. Samuel goes home to Ramah, Saul goes home to Gibeah. These cities are only two miles apart from each other, and yet never again during the rest of Saul's life will Samuel share the word of God with this rejected king because he's no longer God's king. The text tells us again that the Lord regretted making Saul king. Again, it's, it's important for us to, to take this, con, this, this phrase, this of text in context. Because you notice this word regret in, in verse 29. It's set in parallel with lying and changing God's mind. Here, this idea of, of regret is, is set in the context of, of grief and mourning. There's no contradiction between 29 and here in 34 and 35. God might not regret Saul as king in the sense of you know what, I made a mistake here, but he does grieve over the way that Saul has led his people astray. So I want us to consider, as we come to the end of this passage, just four, four ways, observations, of, of how this might apply to us and to our lives. So just four brief applications. First one is this, external worship cannot be separated from inner obedience. External worship cannot be separated from inner obedience. The reality is external acts of worship can't even be considered worship without a heart of obedience. The, the only way that external acts are actually worship is if they are coming from a heart of worship. This passage isn't against external acts of worship. It's, it's not against regularly attending worship with other Christians. It's, it's not against serving in the church. It's not against faithfully giving to the church. It's not against spiritual disciplines. All those are good things. All of those are commanded by God, and yet they are worthless if they are not also coupled 
with a heart that is obedient to God, that keeps the commands of God. External acts of worship cannot be separated from inner obedience. Second is this, God knows what God wants better than me. God knows what God wants better than me. That's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but it's also true. Maybe we should even go further from this passage and say that not only does God know what God wants, God has also revealed what God wants. He shows how he wants to be worshipped in his word. He's, he's given us his priorities. That's what we see in his word. So be very careful about assuming or presuming to know what God wants when he's already told you what he wants. He's told you that in the Bible. Third, a question for you. Are you more concerned with the uh, opinions of others or the opinion of God? Are you more concerned with other, what other people think about you or what God thinks about you? This is one of the underlying themes of Saul in this passage. Here's this man who is not guided by a concern for what God thinks about him, only, considered, uh, only concerned with what other people think about him. And finally, partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. If you're only partially keeping the commands of God, that means you are partially disobeying the commands of God. We know this is true from any other area of life. If I tell my kids, clean up your room, and they pick up the toys, but they don't pick up their clothes that are on the ground, did they really clean their room? Or if your boss asks you to do a project, finish a project by the end of the day, and you do half of it and say, you know what, I, I finished the project. Did you really finish the project? Partial obedience is disobedience. It's the same thing with God. If we are only partially keeping his commands, then we are disobeying his commands. To obey is better than sacrifice, and that's the heart of this passage. But I want us to notice that this passage doesn't just operate on this moral plane of how I should live my life, even though that's certainly true. This is a passage that, that absolutely tells us how we should live, how we should respond, how we should look at our hearts to see if we're actually following God. But notice that it has, a, a, I think, a deeper lesson. Look at verse 35 and the regret that God experiences. It says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Where is God's regret? Where is God's grief found? It's not found just in Saul's disobedience, but in Saul's disobedience as king. That the source of God's grief here is not just that Saul is disobedient, but that because Saul is the king, he is leading the people in disobedience as well. This text makes it very, very clear how important the king is to God's people. The king is the one who sets the, the tone spiritually for all of God and his, all of God's people. As he goes, so do God's people. And if we look at the people of God under the reign of Saul, we can just see how damaging a bad king is. The people are fearful. They don't trust in the Lord. They're sinful. They're greedy. They're quick to abandon the promises of God for the comforts of the world. And this grieves the heart of God. Do you see 
how this phrase here at the very end of this passage, that the Lord regrets making Saul king, how that ties into the overall message of 1 Samuel. Our sermon series title, Looking for the True King. That's the theme of 1 Samuel, that we need a king who is going to point us to the true king, to the king of glory. And the reign of Saul is the exact opposite of that. So, does God think he made a mistake in choosing Saul to be, anointing Saul to be king? No. According to his external or eternal purposes, it's still going to stand. He gives the people a king like the nations because they need a king after his own heart. They need a man after God's own heart. And next week we see that. We see David. 1 Samuel chapter 16, we are introduced to David. And yet David still leads the people astray. David is still not the king that we are looking for. Jesus is. As we look at the reign of Saul, as we look at this man who leads the people astray, it should turn our hearts and our eyes and our minds and our affections to this king who always obeys the voice of the Lord, who always walks the hard path of obedience, who always honors God, who always seeks not to please others, but to please the king of glory. We need a, a king who does not grieve the heart of God, but one of whom God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We need Jesus. As we look at Saul and how he fails as king, it should turn our hearts and our minds to King Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you for this text. We thank you that you are our king, that you reign. Help us, God, to have hearts of obedience expressed through external actions, but more and more importantly, that, that we would be people who obey you and listen to you. Help us follow King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.